to be frank, I'm pretty pessimistic about the available diplomatic off-ramps. I'm also quite pessimistic that there's anything the U.S. can do necessarily to deter Russia. If you think August 2014 was probably an incursion of four to six battalion tactical groups, and maybe the winter offensive in 2015 was eight to 12, that's not a lot. Uh, in this particular scenario, we are talking something like 50 to 100 battalion tactical groups, just to clarify the picture. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And for this episode, I had the chance to talk to Michael Kaufman. He is the director of the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analyses and is also a senior adjunct fellow at the Center for a New American Security and formerly a non-resident fellow at MWI. Now, most listeners will have seen a lot of headlines in the news lately about what is described as a pretty dramatic buildup in Russian troop numbers near Russia's border with Ukraine. But there is a ton of nuance and context that need to be accounted for when we seek to make sense of it, to predict what comes next, and to identify what strategic options are available really to respond. We talked through all of that in the conversation you're about to hear. Before we get to it though, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're enjoying the MWI podcast, I'd like to ask you if you could spare a moment to give it a rating or leave a review wherever you download it from. It really does help new listeners to find us. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Michael Kaufman. Mike, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the MWI podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on uh, your program. So I asked you to, to come on the podcast to talk about this sort of recent uh, movement of Russian troops inside of Russia to the areas near the Ukrainian border. Listeners, I'm sure, will have seen lots of headlines about this. As I've been reading some of the media coverage, though, I, I kept being struck by that maybe, you know, I wasn't developing a complete picture of it myself as a non-Russia expert because some of the uh, the news and, and even some of the commentary and analysis about it um, focuses on, you know, things like just the troop numbers and and doesn't really define what it means to be, you know, close to the Ukrainian border. There are these layers of context, including what's happened earlier this year in the past several years, uh, really since since uh, since 2014, that maybe need to also come into play in the way we, we conceptualize what's happening now. So as a first sort of big framing question, what should we be making uh, of these current troop movements? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's it's not a straightforward subject, but I'll break it down this way. You know, starting actually early this year, there began to be what you could call a troop buildup. And by troop buildup, what do we actually mean? We mean units that are out of their garrison for deploying to another area, not to the local training range, not to where they do certification checks, and unusual out-of-cycle activity, activity that can't be explained by regular exercises, by scheduled trainings and the like. And that began to be very visible in March and April. There was a you know, troop buildup in regions around Ukraine. Now, what do we mean by near Ukraine, by the way? Russia's vast. Russia is a country of thousands of thousands of kilometers, right? And just the Western military district alone, when people say something's a Western military district, I immediately ask where? because that can easily be a 1500 by 1500 kilometer box. So you gotta mm. be a little specific. 
You know, the Western military district stretches as far into Russia from Estonia as it would from the border of Estonia into the middle of France. So you got to, you got to, oh. yeah, yeah, you have to be a little specific when it comes to Russia when you say something's in a district. And a central military district is larger than the Western. And the Eastern is is also vast. So, you know, you got to, like I say, got to specify. Uh, on Ukraine, by near Ukraine, we mean something within 200 to 300 kilometers. Why? That's a rough self-deployment range for a unit, for a tactical formation when it deploys a brigade a division. You know, when the force generates, and let's say, maneuver battalions or battalion tactical groups, it is then able to really easily get itself the rest of the 200 kilometers to the border of a country, you know, without having to get on, on, on a railroad or necessarily or something like that. All right. Uh, so in March, April, there was this buildup. It felt like a case of course of diplomacy. Um, it, what Moscow won at the time wasn't quite clear. And then a number of the units, particularly the ones that deployed long range, there was the units from the 41st Army, which is in Central Military District in Novosibirsk. That's for, for folks, that's just to give us something like, you know, more, almost 3,000 kilometers from Ukraine into Russia. Uh, and and they had sort of parked themselves. And then they stayed over the summer and they were supposed to leave after the, you know, annual command staff strategic exercise that Russia runs called, you know, this year called Zapa 2021. But they didn't leave. They just sort of hung around for a month and a half, and then they suddenly woke up after the exercise and moved themselves further northwest in the Western military district. So things began to look very strange in October. They actually looked a little strange over the summer, too. The Russian military kept cycling units in and out of kind of this area, and troop levels fluctuated up and down. But the one consistent thing about it was that there were far more units out of garrison than you would expect to see, right? And that activity had had picked up in October, just as the training season should be winding down, qualification checks should be winding down. You have our cycle activity, except this time, much more covert, moving units at night. A lot of units, you see their gear, you know, you could see um, from open sources, people kind of do this because now you have all these OSINT researchers that access the satellites and they can easily image things. You know, think tanks are doing it all the time. CSIS is putting out Maxar images. Heck, Politico can do it now. You know, I saw they had an article with Pretty high res max our uh, satellite footage, so kind of tells you where we are in 2021. Yeah. So they basically showing that these units are out of garrison, they're in these other places, and uh, the long story short on that is that um, this significant troop buildup taking place now. It seems to be unfolding slowly. They're doing it in a more covert fashion, so it's not seen, and they appear to be pre-positioning units. Uh, there's no sign of an imminent invasion. It's not that kind of force posture, but it looks very ominous and looks very worrisome. The trend lines are all negative. And if you like, I'm happy to talk about some other indicators that are more problematic than just this. It's not just about the troop movements. Yeah, and I definitely, I want to talk to you about some of those indicators. For whatever reason, it does seem the troop movements um, captures the imagination of observers. It's the thing that sends people's uh, sort of alarms ringing that, hey, this signifies something. I've heard you on several occasions kind of pour cold water on this in the past because, as you said, hey, there's an exercise or some other, you know, explanatory factor for it. But if I'm if I'm um, interpreting what you're saying correctly, this is there's some substance to this. There is something different about this instance. Yeah, it is. It is different. Um, it's different than things I feel we have observed since the winter offensive of 2015. And it looks like a military that has been given the planning order 
to position itself for a large-scale contingency and has been taking all year in order to move the pieces in place, to drill, to deploy and redeploy and deploy again, to make sure that they can do it to make that option viable, right? And I want to be clear, I think any of us watching know that a political decision has been made to invade Ukraine for a large-scale conflict. But what troop movements, what military activity does show you typically is that the political leadership has made the decision to prepare for this kind of contingency and has told the military to make it viable as an option, right? That's what mil institutional militaries do. You tell them to plan for a conflict, they start training, they start drilling. And if you say, I would like to have this option, there must be a reason for why you would like to have that option. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, it is what all institutional militaries do. Certainly the U.S. military uh, does and has, you know, who knows how many plans sort of sitting on a shelf that they've been tasked with developing uh, plans that they train against. Um, the dis the difference here is, you know, the actual movement of, of troops looks to us like what we would call our, our RSOI, reception staging, onward movement and integration. Part of that, I think, is because of, you know, the uniqueness of Russia and Ukraine being sort of juxtaposed against one another, whereas from a U.S. perspective, our, you know, our conflicts are fought as away games, uh, so to speak. So perhaps there's some misinterpretation occurring because of that. Uh, I want to ask a question. There's a there's sort of a narrative, I think, that exists uh, that the Russian military is almost like two forces, um, that there's a huge gap between its professional forces and its conscript forces. To what extent is that true, I guess, is the first question. And, and, and second, you know, to the extent that it is, does the makeup of the units that are involved in these troop movements help us discern anything about the capabilities or intentions uh, sort of, uh, I guess, behind the movements? Sure, that's a great, that's a, that's a great comment. So um, broadly, I would say I've, I've heard that perception is commonly held. Uh, you know, I always, I've always give a frank and honest answer. The honest answer is no. That's not okay. a correct perception of how the Russian military works. Uh, the Russian military is about a third to less than a third conscript based. It's primarily a contract uh, service uh, force. Uh, the way the military is organized is what is the units, the formations, are not necessarily manned at 100%, but your typical sort of regiments, brigades, regiments in a division and standing brigades, you know, they're really set up to be able to force generate if they want to battalion tactical groups. And the way they're often geared up is they generate maybe, let's say, two battalion tactical groups up front and then a third one that they will fill in, which will be a heavier sort of conscript formation. But conscripts serve across the ground forces, right? They're not a two-tier military per se, okay? Conscripts perform certain roles, and they're also called up to fill roles in terms of manning um, in divisions and units that are that are understaffed. Uh, but there isn't like there's a separate conscript force. The Russian yeah. military can generate in two ways. It can generate as full brigades and divisions, or for local wars or smaller contingencies, it generates in things like battalion tactical groups where task-organized formations Typically around 800 troops, it can range from, you know, 800 to 1,200. They could be larger. And the Costco component of the force, uh, it's not used typically for, you know, exterritorial operations. But nonetheless, it is interwoven in these units. It's simply not necessarily the, you know, the maneuver battalion that's going to be sent first. Now, the other part about conscripts, 
a lot of people, I'll be honest, in US military have very strange conceptions about conscripts, just speaking as somebody who's been watching this thing for a long time. So all the major world wars were fought with conscript armies. Some were very much better than others. Conscripts are not made equally. Like it's probably fair to say that Germany had the better continental conscript army in both, both world wars, right? That's a fair assessment, at least in the early period of the war. Second point, Israel has a partial conscript army. Do people think that Israel's uh, army is rubbish? I don't yeah. think so, right? That's a good point. Okay, so let's now go through because people think people associate conscript versus contract with military professional or not, but that's actually uh, very different terms. Military professionalism versus conscript or contract-based military are two separate conversations, all right? And, and it's important to disambiguate that because I often hear this with folks in the, in the way they think in our military. It's a conscript military. It's true, a conscript military is better for national defense than expedition operations, something like that. And it's true, you cannot get good specialization in a conscript military because a person needs to spend X hours, right? To training and, and all that. What the Russian military has done is it uses the one-year conscripts to then offer to those people three-year contract service once they're getting towards the tail end of their one-year conscription to keep them in the military and then train them and specialize them. It also now offers everybody facing the draft the option to not do one-year conscript service, but to do two-year contract, get better pay, better potential conditions, but to sign up for a longer term, right? And remember, the force intake of conscripts per year in the Russian military is probably around 250K or somewhere between 230 to 250, depending on the year, okay. right? It's actually not not as big a percentage of the force as people think it is. So are there sort of insights that we can glean from the identity of the units involved in in the movements, uh, the troop movements you know, sort of toward Ukraine? Sure, I think that uh, just based on what's publicly available there, you know, we have units from the Southern military districts from the Caucasus that have moved into Crimea. Um, we have uh, units from the Western military district that are sort of major operational reserve units like First Tank Guards Army that have moved from Moscow's outskirts. Some of their units have moved down towards the Ukrainian border. We still have units of the 41st Army and even more that appear to be coming from Central Military District, which is a reserve district that generates swing units in to different strategic directions, but its job is to reinforce the other districts. It kind of houses the warehouses and, you know, it it doesn't have a major contingency, right? It's sort of contingency is potentially an intervention in Central Asia, but it's mostly units opposite like Kazakhstan, right? Sure. So you kind of think about, you know, its main role is kind of a swing district. But there's other things worth looking at. Russia really began investing heavily in rapidly standing up a reserve system. Okay, they essentially have two types of reserve, but the one that we should focus on here is the bar system. They have for a long time experimented with reserves, which they really didn't have for the military, because after the reforms, they killed the mass mobilization army. When they created a smaller permanent standing force, they didn't have a good reserve for it. They never allocated money for it. Suddenly they've woken up and decided that they're gonna allocate a lot of money for reserves. Now suddenly they have each military district drawing up reserves. And now suddenly in the last couple of months, they're starting to do call-ups of, of reserves for territorial battalions across Western Southern military district. Why? Territorial battalion groups are not groups meant to fill in manning gaps in standing Russian divisions. They're units meant to uh, defend critical infrastructure and hold territory after the, the initial formations have been able to seize terrain and move on, right? 
So in a sense that these are not units you would expect to fill standing line units, but they're actually follow on formations. So that looks concerning. That should concern anybody that just kind of looks at what's going on. And, and there's a host of other indicators from little Nitnoi tactical things like Russian units this year suddenly waking up to having to deal with ATGMs and drones and other things and pursuing um, various uh, technical adaptations to how to defend armor from that uh, to, to other uh, sort of indicators that suggest that this year there's a visible departure in Russian military thinking and planning, especially when it comes to Ukraine. You mentioned earlier that um, one way to interpret this is if is as if the the Russian military has essentially been given almost a be prepared to order. Um, you know, they've been told to develop plans and and evidently uh, initiate you know some of the training and troop movements associated with those plans uh, for some sort of contingency vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. How much of it though is uh, I guess a signaling effort? How much of it is uh, about demonstrating to the United States, demonstrating to NATO the willingness to undertake uh, these troop movements, the willingness to expend the, uh, you know, the pretty considerable resources I imagine uh, it it requires uh, to enable these troop movements, uh, and and intend that as sort of a signal uh, to the West and to Ukraine that it is willing to, you know, it is willing to act, uh, it is willing to potentially to escalate. Sure. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned about the expense, right? It's not a cheap thing to do. And uh, given the buildup they've gone through in March, April, and I want to say these are actually not really two separate events. This is one series of events that's playing out over the course of a year. The thing that's really disconcerting, to be honest, is not so much the military side. It's when military activity aligns with political statements and change in tone. And the thing that I think really kind of set me off is starting earlier in the year, Russian political discourse on Ukraine and towards us, the United States, changed significantly. And it became very consistent. It became different from what it had been in the past. And the two main lines were that, look, Russia has clear red lines in Ukraine. right? And the two demands that the fact that they're issuing, because it does feel in a sense like an ultimatum that's coming down. And the big question is, do people think they're bluffing? Uh, if no agreement can be reached, and that's quite likely, you know, are they are they likely to are they going to back down and, and essentially say, well, we, we gave this a try and, and whatnot? But the point of the military deployment, first and foremost, is to get their demands ser taken seriously. And the demands are first the the political standstill deadlock over Minsk II implementation for Moscow is unacceptable, right? So they want to force Ukraine back into making serious compromise on the negotiating table. And the second one is for the United States, which is to say that uh, U.S. military activity, defense cooperation with Ukraine um, is an affront. And, and, the, and the issue for Moscow is no longer whether or not Ukraine is formally accepted into NATO, basically it's that, but it's not just that. Their position is that NATO in Ukraine is the problem. That structural defense cooperation, arming Ukraine with certain particular types of weapons, and U.S. military presence training centers, which, you know, as Vladimir Putin says, could then become anything else. He's basically saying, look, you're engaged in defense cooperation creep. You're functionally treating Ukraine as a member of NATO, even though formally they're not. And if you're going to base training facilities and then eventually missile defense, 
or short range ballistic missiles, you know, in a sense of the army's long range precision fires program shows up in Ukraine. I don't care if Ukraine's in NATO, right? To, to, from, from a Russian point of view, their argument is the problem for me is the same, sure. right? Ukraine being in NATO formally is important, but what's happening is also red line. So this is basically the two things they've been pushing since last spring. And, you know, it's, it's not clear if anything can come out of, you know, upcoming discussions between between Putin and, and Biden. I'm just saying that the messaging on Ukraine has gotten very stern. They made clear they see no purpose to any further diplomatic contacts with the Zelensky administration in Kiev. They've tried to delegitimize them as much as possible. They've basically shown that they're tired of diplomacy. And they are increasingly looking like a community intellectually, right, Le like leadership that's talking itself into use of force. That's what you, that's, from my point of view, it, that's what it looks like. And then the question is, how much of this is coercive bargaining? How much of this is ultimately a bluff? Sure, every leader keeps their options open. Obviously, nobody prefers war as their leading option. That's, that's also true. But the military side tells us that war looks like plan B, and it looks increasingly like a plan B that they that they are positioning to realize if if given the you know the order to do so. You know the the United States has a um, a fairly small number of trainers, military personnel in the country. So do the Brits, so do the Canadians. Independent missions, since it's not there is no unified NATO uh, training mission. Um, you know, but they are small numbers. How much of a deterrent is their presence? Uh, in the country, even though, you know, they're not, you know, positioned forward anywhere near the the uh, the line of contact uh, in eastern Ukraine. I mean, the current military presence in Ukraine is not a deterrent. I don't think anybody in Moscow takes seriously um, the proposition that the U.S. Or, or NATO at large is going to fight for Ukraine. There's no such commitments made. If anything, people have been pretty clear on the NATO side, that obviously Ukraine's not in NATO. On the U.S. side, there's always the dilemma of, you know, you you can't afford an action, you can't afford to look, you know, particularly weak because you think that might be inviting aggression. But then, if you make political commitments which very which aren't credible, simply aren't, then if the if the worst comes to pass, the the more you politically commit yourself to a a position that you have absolutely no intention to substantiate, right? the more the damage will be to potential reputation and credibility. And I just want to be clear, I don't personally necessarily think the reputation and credibility works that way, that's interrelated in that fashion. That's an academic discussion. Political leaders do and what they think matters and what I think doesn't. So just, just to be clear, other political leaders do look at those things. Okay. So that's how they that's how they tend to treat that subject. Um, so that's that's what might be on on the presence of Ukraine. You know, the Russian conversation is not necessarily about what's happening now. It's a conversation about the future and the trajectory and wanting to avert it. And what always happens, what, I, what begins to worry me is leaders talk themselves into using force because they begin to start a conversation where they think that uh, use of force is inevitable. And then they start asking, would it be cheaper and less risky to do it now versus later? They don't use force because they think, well, it's a great idea. Let's just do it. Um, it's... You see increasing the conversation Moscow switching to. There are things that are on a trajectory in Ukraine. It's a loss of urgent calculus. Maybe using force now as expensive and risky as it would be is still a lot cheaper than five plus years from now. Right. That's at least what they're signaling. How true that is is up to debate. 
So if the if the presence isn't a, a deterrent, um, but it is, you know, maybe like a, a, a highly visible um, indicator of, of the sort of things that Russia, the sort of intangible things that Russia wants uh, eliminated. If the United States next week, hypothetically speaking, and I'm not saying they would do this, I'm certainly not saying they should do this, but we're to say that, hey, when the current training team's rotations are complete, we're not going to replace them. Maybe they, you know, say Ukrainians have made sufficient progress that, that the in-person assistance is no longer needed. Um, we'd probably be in overstating that, but it wouldn't be the first time we've overstated the capabilities of, of partner forces that the U.S. military has invested in in training. You know, what would be uh, the effect of that, or would it really do very little because Russia's uh, interests are, 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 are greater and less tangible? Yeah, I, so first, I don't think so. It's not about, I don't want to be dismissive, but it's not about those little things. I don't believe in unilateral concessions. I always believe if you're making concessions, they should be reciprocal. And I, I actually don't fundamentally don't think it's about that. I think that the the real issue is first between Russia and Ukraine. And it's about Russia finding ways to compel a change in Ukrainian policy, which is going to be very hard because Ukrainian public is opposed. The political leadership in Ukraine is always very weak. And whenever it's tried to push towards compromise, it's found that it doesn't have support. And, and then eventually sort of tacks towards a harder line, looks for support from from Western, from Western partners. And the conversation with the United States is more about, you know, kind of nebulously Russia wants security guarantees, but what are those security guarantees? Ultimately what they want is something like, uh, you know, Finlandization for Ukraine, right? And the problem is I don't think the United States is actually in a position to offer that even if we wanted to. It's not like the U.S. can force NATO to repeal the 2008 Bucharest Declaration. Sure. That Ukraine will may someday become part of NATO, even though nobody has any intention of allowing Ukraine into NATO. So I, to be frank, I'm pretty pessimistic about the available diplomatic off-ramps. I'm also quite pessimistic that there's anything the U.S. can do necessarily to deter Russia, which is, yeah, we can signal economic and political costs. That's where you have great leverage. Most of the cockamamie ideas about, you know, sending some more weapons or things to Ukraine, fine if you want to increase military costs, but you have to just appreciate that's going to make no difference in this calculus. This, this tactical things don't matter for big picture deterrence. Javelins, you know, Bayraktar drones are completely irrelevant to political leaders. They don't know and don't care about the stuff. If you all want to discover that's true, ask senior political leaders what they know about military technology at the tactical level. You will very quickly discover that they usually don't know how the stuff works. And what they do know is often wrong. And that the military balance on all these things is only one input. And that's the lesser input on their calculus. So don't. So I'm saying, don't. If you if you want to shape outcomes, you know, in war fighting costs for Russia, that's you're welcome to have that conversation. But no one should delude themselves that you're going to deter anything. I mentioned at the outset of the conversation that one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you so that we could have a conversation about uh, these Russian troop movements that incorporated all of the necessary context within which. Uh, you know, they need to be understood. I'm about to be a little bit hypocritical when I ask this next question, because I'm going to remove some of that context. If we can think of this as a sort of single homogenous monolithic thing that began with the troop movements in the spring and continued through those uh, more recent, uh, more recent movements, the question, I guess, is how does it end? Or the more fundamental question is, does it end? Or is this just sort of one act in a much longer play? Yeah, so I think the the optimistic scenario 
is that uh, after some negotiation, you know, the Moscow feels, and at least they've signaled this, that their red lines and concerns have now been taken seriously. And they, they feel like they've gotten some traction, some political win, and that they ultimately de-escalate because they decide that the risk and costs aren't worth it. But more importantly, it's not the risk and costs. It's that they feel that there's a political option to achieve their aims, right? At the end of the day, people use force to achieve political aims and because they feel they have to. So that's the optimistic one, right? Uh, the pessimistic scenario is that there's a series of conversation, conversations. The Russian takeaway from those is that uh, the costs might be high but indeterminate. The, uh, at the end of the day, the U.S. commitment to Ukraine is very nebulous. But the more significant calculation is that, you know, if they feel that it's a, a conflict, a follow-on conflict is inevitable, that there's an impasse that cannot be resolved without another war, and they ask themselves, when is Russia best positioned for that war? And the honest answer is now. From an economic and military standpoint, Russia is much better positioned now than it was in 2014, 2015. I don't believe those sort of hand-waving mantras some political analysts have that, like, Putin's risk-averse. That's nonsense, in my point of view. Um, it's probably much more reactive than proactive leader, but that's not the point. That's neither here nor there. Like, when facing, when facing loss-aversion calculus, like, he's shown that he's consistently willing to run high risk if he feels he's trying to avert losses. Um, so my view on that is that it's that it's hard to predict. Ultimately, political calculus on, on the Russian side is a bit hard to predict. But at least the signaling the body posture is very clear. What would that war look like? I think that it would potentially be a much larger version of the Russia-Georgia war, a high-intensity operation cutting across eastern Ukraine, uh, possibly even northern and southern reaches to destroy Ukraine's military potential and then impose a new political settlement, a much worse one than the Minsk ceasefire agreement. You know, a kind of a more escalatory version of that would be, you know, some indeterminate time occupation of eastern Ukraine uh, to get settlement. I'm a bit more skeptical on that. End. What, what I do want to clarify, though, it's not going to be small. The Ukrainian military is strong enough to deter some small incursion with a couple battalions, right? And the previous fights were actually very small for an attacking force, right, against a defending force. The Russian military never put together anything like a three to six correlation force's advantage. Like if you think August 2014 was probably an incursion of four to six battalion tactical groups, and maybe the winter offensive in 2015 was eight to 12. That's not a lot. Uh, in this particular scenario, we are talking something like 50 to 100 battalion tactical groups, just to clarify the picture. Okay. So I just want to like make the scale, I would like to make the scale palpable. The, the, for the Russian military, in order to minimize losses, it would have to be a much larger operation that genuinely endangers the Ukrainian military, which has had tre tremendous improvements at the tactical level, but I think across the board is qualitatively and quantitatively inferior. And, and I think any objective analyst looking, looking at this picture would, would, would agree. And would certainly have a huge problem at, at the more operational strategic level. So this operation would be much larger. It would be much more intense, and uh, and it would it would be a form of escalation that would involve, I think, at the very least, uh, all of Ukraine's eastern regions, and by that I mean things east of the Dnieper River. You know, this really it sounds to me anyway puts the United States and and NATO 
between a rock and a hard place. Um, if, if we can sort of conceive of Russia's troop movements as a form of strategic communication, and obviously it's much more than that, uh, but if we can, that message has been received uh, pretty loudly, pretty clearly in Kiev and Brussels and Washington. Um, what message could be communicated back and by what means uh, so as to, if not you know, entirely forestall the prospects of Russian military aggression against Ukraine, at least make the Kremlin think twice uh, about its about its next move. Yeah, look, it's a profound dilemma. There's nothing here that can be easily solved. I want to be clear. Um, and and I was certainly not advanced myself as a person that, incidentally, has come up with a, with the solutions uh, sitting in their own computer share. But uh, the way I look at it is there's a genuine cost equation, which would be to make credible the threat of economic costs. And to make those economic costs credible, you have to build the instrument of coercion because it entirely depends on U.S. allies. It's not dependent that much on the United States. And Moscow would have to believe that we would be prepared to follow through with some pretty escalatory economic measures as punishments. The second one to me is really a conversation with Russia about the, the thing it cares about, um, maybe not as much as Ukraine, but proximate to that, because there is a tremendous asymmetry of interest at stake. Obviously, you, Russia just cares about Ukraine way more than we do. Now, some people in D.C. care about Ukraine quite a bit. It's a personal and moral cost for them, but they do not a government make. So hmm. um, the second thing is to basically signal that, look, it will result in a profound change to the security environment in Europe. A change that Russia very much won't like. It'll take us down the road Russia really doesn't want to go because it will force a much larger U.S. military return to Europe. The follow-on consequences for U.S. allies will be such that it will draw a much larger U.S. military presence and it will reshape the European security environment in a way from a big picture perspective that I think Russia really doesn't want. So I don't like messaging on Ukraine because I'll be very frank. People in Moscow don't believe that anybody here knows anything more about Ukraine than they do. They have strong confirmation bias. Okay, Ukraine, Russia, both uh, states within the Soviet Union. You're not going to educate or lecture those elites, just to be very clear. And to be frank, many of them know the history better than, than Western counterparts, right? Or at least they think they do. So it's a, that's a, it's a dead-end conversation. But you can have a conversation about the future European security and the fact that even if Moscow gains in Ukraine, they have to realize that they're going to lose big in the long term from a strategic perspective. And that, that may give that may give someone for pause. And then, of course, OK, that just sticks. What about, you know, what about the carrots? I mean, I think the United States can have a conversation on reciprocal de-escalation, about military activity, about military presence. Uh, I also think the United States needs to take a much more active political role in managing Minsk. We don't like the agreement, so we decided we wouldn't be a part of it. So the Normandy talks over Minsk don't include the United States. Germany and France, but not the United States. Well, uh, we can judge where we have ended up now in 2021. I don't think anybody looking at that will say that that's the way we should have done it. This is a success story now. We should keep doing it this way. So there's definitely room for change in the U.S. political approach and involvement in managing this conflict. I think that uh, the administration needs to realize, despite the need for strategic focus on China, as I've written before, yes, it's China first, but not China only. And people have to realize that Russia is a persistent power. And 
it's going to have a huge vote and say over where it is on the U.S. foreign policy and national security agenda. You simply cannot dictate these things, right? This is the real world. There's a very significant chance of a large-scale conflict in Europe come next year. I'm not talking in the next days or weeks, but in the coming months, it's not an insignificant probability. It's got to be taken seriously. And uh, I know the defense establishment really wants to focus on China. And I know it sounds kind of parochial from a Russian mill has to say, we should also talk about Russia. But but I want to be clear that it's not just that. It's it's the reality is that you, you're not going to you're not going to be able to um, to, to ignore Russia in, in Europe. That's, that's just uh, the events that have been unfolding this entire year have continued to to substantiate that that reality. You mentioned the, uh, you know, the the risk of escalation to conflict, you know, sometime next year. Can you kind of expand on, uh, you know, that that sort of timeline? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but is this is this a situation in which we should expect to see key developments occur on a day to day basis, week to week basis, or what have you? Sure. So, from my point of view, the timeline is the coming months. I think that. Uh, I would look to January and February as maybe a potential time period for a military operation. But just because nothing happens, if Russian force posture doesn't change, it doesn't mean that we're, you know, we're out of the woods and, and people can go back and pay attention to whatever is their, their topic of interest, right? That's still, it's, it, it, it means that just the political decision has been made in Moscow. Uh, it, it also depends on intervening events. It depends on what happens in uh, the supposed virtual summit between Putin and Biden. Um, I want to be clear, the administration has, has actually talked with senior Russian leaders. Bill Burns, the director said, I went over there and met at the highest level. He's very well respected there. He met with their national security advisor. They met, he met with Vladimir Putin, and they clearly had a conversation. I don't know what was said, but... The reason why I'm pessimistic is after those series of conversations, there's not been any change in Russian force posture preparations. Yeah. So if we were expecting to see some effect, a downloading of Russian troops at the border, de-escalation, I've not seen that at all. Right. It looks like, you know, the, the trains are moving in the wrong direction, so to speak. So we've had the opportunity to, to talk about this now uh, in some detail for 30 or 40 minutes. Um, you know, we've you've given kind of a well-rounded encapsulation of the situation and the events that we're watching unfold. But if we could put sort of a finer point on it, how serious uh, are these developments? Yeah, I think I think that this is the most serious it has been since the fighting of 2015. Okay, and, and you know, it's it's anybody's guess. Some people think that Putin is risk averse and is bluffing. I don't think he's risk averse. I don't know if this is a bluff. If this is a course of diplomacy gambit or if they are just looking for a pretext to go to war what i can say is in the coming months if they are looking for a pretext to go to war other events will unfold alongside these military deployments that will make that increasingly clear well mike i think we're going to leave it there i want to thank you again for uh, making some time and 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 uh to record this conversation i really enjoyed it i i hope and i trust listeners will as well for listeners who you know who did enjoy it and want to continue to kind of follow this stuff and are interested in in uh you know mike's thoughts uh about this um 
Michael Kaufman on Twitter is a is a great follow. Also check out all the articles that he writes uh, uh, frequently and that are published uh, very widely. So, Mike, with that, I want to thank you again for uh, for joining me today. No, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.